This is an Ecodharma audio podcast of a talk from Buddhafield's Green Earth Awakening 2016. It's called The Transformative Group and A Fugitive Equilibrium. It's the second of two talks on the theme of collaboration by me, Gihapati, a member of the Ecodharma Collective. For more about our work, check out www.ecodharma.com. So, uh, on the board, you can probably see there's like a little bit of kind of a cluster of different names for this this talk. Um, I was so when I spoke to Rosie about what, what I do, I sort of called this talk um, "Action and Cognition." I was going to do a talk about um, the Santiago theory of cognition, how it intersects with Yogacara philosophy, and how that can inform the the, the bringing forth of political subjects. And then I decided when I got here that probably wasn't the right talk to give. <laughs> So um, instead, I decided to do a talk that follows up um, on the talk that I did on Thursday. And uh, so the talk is Transformative Groups of Fugitive Equilibrium. And um, on Thursday, uh, I was talking about um, something we're calling transformative collaboration, uh, exploring the way that engaged action with others um, can uh, help to antidote some of the dangers in uh, Buddhist practice towards either a kind of um, cosmological, a cosmologically dualistic view of reality uh, or a kind of deterioration into a kind of more um, uh, personalistic, um, self-referential uh, notion of the alleviation of suffering. Um, yeah, I focus particularly on um, collaboration um, in solidarity with life, was one of the phrases that I used. And, um, yeah, the importance of collaborating based on the value of going for the good of the whole. So going for the good of the whole is a phrase that I've lifted from the work of a, a woman called Donella Meadows. And Donella Meadows was a systems scientist who was one of the co-authors of... Uh, a very significant book published in the 70s uh, called The Limits to Growth. She also co-authored the 30-year update that was published in about 2006. The Limits to Growth was uh, a very important publication that um, really helped to popularise awareness that um, a system, an economic system based on growth is deeply irrational within the context of non-negotiable ecological limits. So a very, very important bit of work. So towards the end of her life, she died just a few years ago, uh, she was working on a primer um, for systems thinking to help people to um, understand the world more in terms of systems, more in terms of the relationships between things, so that we could find ways to intervene in the world uh, more effectively in more intelligent ways uh, that book was uh, uh, in that book there's a chapter which is called Living in a World of Systems and in that chapter she offers a number of maxims um, for living in a world of systems um, and it's really you know it's a book that's very full of heart you know as a scientist um, she brought an enormous heart and uh, a very interesting ethical sensibility to her work so in, in that chapter, amongst the maxims, we find things like uh, expose your mental models to the light of day. 
or um, make feedback policies for feedback systems. And uh, stay humble, stay a learner. Yeah, great, you know, really, really great maxims. And it's amongst this kind of list of maxims that she unpacks in little, little sort of aphoristic um, sections. And she offers that key piece of advice, you know, go for the good of the whole. If you want to live effectively in a world of systems that you understand in systems terms, the key value that she offers is go for the good of the whole. So, you know, for me, this is a, um, it's a kind of a, a, a reframing of the very ancient wisdom embodied in Buddhism, embodied in the Bodhisattva ideal, you know, the Bodhicitta, the aspiration to work for the benefit of all beings. And sort of reframed and re-emerging within the context of, of system science. And, you know, I think that this, this idea of going for the good of the whole, it's the basis, really, of all authentic, all authentic spiritual practice. So I was suggesting on Thursday that going for the good of the whole involves working with others. We require collaboration to do that well. And I offered kind of five reasons why we should collaborate. I said, you know, collaboration is a, a crucial context for transformation and development for the individuals involved in it, you know, for us. Uh, it's a necessary basis for effectiveness and empowerment. If we want to have significant influence in the world around us, we need to, in a way, find a kind of, you know, the, the, a kind of collective agency, harness and build collective agency. It's also a necessary means for embodying values. When I said you can't embody the value of solidarity alone, um, the fourth way, thing that I mentioned was that it's actually um, a way of honouring interconnectedness, of actually aligning ourselves with the nature of reality. And it's also a source of synergy and creativity. So these are the five kind of key reasons that I argued why we should collaborate, why we should make this a kind of central practice in our lives, a central part of our lives. So... You know, those five ideas kind of unpack why it's so valuable. Um, but of course, it's not easy to do. And so what I want to explore today is how we can explore some of the challenges that we face in trying to work effectively together, trying to build, um, you know, effective culture, um, collaborative cultures or organisations or groups, or relationships. So, using the term transformative collaboration, I'm using it in a, in a holistic way, um, implying that transformation in that, in that context happens at multiple levels. So, I've already referred a bit to this. So it, it happens at the level of, it's a, it's a context for, the individ, for individual transformation, and it's a means for effective social transformation. So, it has an impact on the world around us when we do it effectively, um, but not only does it have an impact on the world around us in terms of social transformation, it's also a context where we seek to embody the values that we're trying to you know, bring about in the world. Um, but I'm sure you're all very, uh, perhaps even painfully aware of just how difficult that is. You know, how often in our own groups we simply reproduce the tendencies, the patterns, the behaviours uh, in the world that we, we're seeking to transform. We just reproduce them. 
So we find ourselves um, beset by sort of entrenched conflicts that seem very, very difficult uh, to resolve. We notice um, that there are hidden power dynamics that are hard to surface, difficult to talk about, difficult to transform. Uh, We find um, ourselves and others competing for influence and status with each other. We often get a kind of breakdown of trust. Um, It's very, very difficult to repair. And in different ways we find ourselves reproducing oppressive types of relationships. You know, perhaps most evident in terms of the way that sexism or racism might play out in some of our groups, but in lots of other forms as well. Given all those difficulties, how can we really begin to embody our values in these groups? And that's that's kind of what I want to explore. And I'm not going to be offering any like prescriptive answers. I'm just going to be trying to offer a framework um, for reflecting on and analysing and trying to deepen our own experiential learning um, that comes from working with others. Okay, I'm going to start by suggesting an ideal. So actually it's, this ideal is in two dimensions, a collective dimension and an individual dimension. So the collective level, the idea that I'm suggesting that our collaborative work, our collaborative groups, our organisations, our coming, to our social relationships uh, might seek to embody is the ideal of free association, which is non-coercive, mutually empowering and conscious. So some of you might be familiar with this idea of free association as uh, an idea integral to the anarchist tradition. Um, so anarchism is a very complex and varied tradition. It's interesting to be able to call it a tradition, isn't it? Anarchism. Um, popularly, you know, very so often associated with disorder, uh, with kind of social breakdown, with chaos. Um, 19th century, early 20th century anarchism was very much uh, characterised as, as lone, slightly, slightly insane assassins and terrorists um, roaming around you know, uh, pre-revolutionary Russia. Um, it's, uh, it's tended to find expression in very strongly antagonistic relationships to the power structures in society. Um, commonly taking kind of forms of what you might call sort of insurrection or mobilisation. You know, trying to foster, ferment, revolt, rebellion. Um, but it also sometimes deteriorates into slightly different forms, like a kind of individualistic uh, libertarianism as well, or what Murray Bookchin has called uh, lifestyle anarchism. So it's quite varied, but there's a lot more to the tradition than that. Um, there's a very important strand of anarchist thinking uh, and practice that's highly moral. Um, it critiques uh, social hierarchies, Uh, and the rule of law to the extent that those laws and social hierarchies institutionalise oppressive and exploitative relationships Uh, that they they consolidate uh, that they maintain deeply unjust distribution of wealth and power 
so you know, I'm not I'm not championing anarchist ideology, political ideology here, but I am very interested in what we can learn from anarchist critiques of power and some of the explorations that anarchism has has uh, engaged in in trying to find what might be non-coercive types of social relationships and that's why I'm so interested in this idea of free association from that tradition so um, an important anarchist writer Kropotkin, he uh, is very much associated with what's known as uh, anarcho-communism and anarcho-communism avoids the more individualistic um, sort of limitations of lifestyle anarchism by really emphasising the idea of mutual aid um, and at its heart is this very strong moral case for living in solidarity with life, um, with others um, and establishing social and economic relationships that are truly just and are mutually empowering there's a, you know, if you don't know much about the anarchist tradition I would really recommend um, watching a documentary called Living in Utopia if anybody's seen that anyone seen Living in Utopia so you might be familiar with um, the um, the bit of Spanish history where in the ni- in the 1930s 1936 there was initially a, an attempted coup that eventually brought General Franco to power and, and established a dictatorial system there for, for several decades in the initial kind of phases of that coup uh, the, the main resistance to it was achieved in, in Catalonia, at least, um, by the anarchist syndicates, uh, syndicalists of the CNT who had organised. And they resisted, you know, the, the, this, this military coup. So the documentary Living in Utopia uh, is uh, interviews with people who were alive in 1936 and who experienced the next, the next few years uh, where Catalan... Uh, Catalonia and some other parts of Spain were attempting to model themselves on these anarchist principles, and it also looks at so so you know it's these interviews like sixty on the sixtieth anniversary. Right? So these are kind of these are these are older older folk, and um, it kind of doesn't just look at what happened there, but it looks at what kind of led to uh, a sufficient force within these uh, these these forms of anarchist organizing that were able to oppose the, the military coup successfully at least in the first few in the first instance although they were later subsequently you know defeated and uh, you know a, a very a very awful kind of period of, of repression and executions and so on followed um, but yes yeah, so it looks at how they got there so it kind of goes it sort of tells the, the history from from decades earlier of people involved in founding schools, in publishing, um, editing publications, magazines. Uh, one of the guys in it says, you know, whenever two or three anarchists got together, you'd have a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Very prolific you know, publishing sort of going on. Um, they would, um, yeah, the schools, youth clubs. Uh, there's a lovely little section where you, you sort of see this group of, of young people, they're, they're sort of an excursionist club. And they'd get together at the weekends and they'd go walking through the, the, the Catalan countryside. And they'd walk for an hour and they'd sit down to rest with their picnics and someone would get out in a Kropotkin or some latest kind of anarchist pamphlet and kind of, you know, read a few paragraphs and everyone would have a debate about that and off they go and walk a little bit further. But there were years and years of this kind of cultural, you know, this sort of cultural building that sort of went on. 
Um, lots and lots of education, lots of, of, of organising within labour movements to try to, to secure better uh, working conditions, better wages, these kinds of things. Anyway, really, you know, if you're interested in, in sort of seeing a, a bit of the richness of some anchors, it's a great documentary, Living in Utopia. It's, uh, it's translated, there's subtitles, you see it on YouTube, like most things these days. Um, and one of the beautiful things is you see these, they're not black clad, you know, youth running around the streets. It's like, it's, it's people who, you know, they'll be like many of our grandmothers and grandfathers in their floral aprons and their sort of humble clothes. And, and they're just talking very simply about, about what life was like and what their aspirations were and how they sought to embody them. And they were, you know, you get a sense of a real, a very a moral uprightness. You know, many of the anchors at that time, they wouldn't drink or smoke, you know. They were living for very sort of, you know, lofty ideals and really trying to make those, bring those alive. So the ideal of free association, you know, it involves relationships free of coercion. Um, it's mutually empowering in the sense that um, the distribution of social wealth and opportunities are achieved, uh, attempted to be achieved through dialogue and agreement and this, this sort of idea of trying to embody the principle of give what you can, take what you need. Um, and at its heart is this, this idea that each of us is uniquely valuable. And, uh, and that actually we find enrichment in supporting each other to, to flourish in that, in creating opportunities for each other to flourish in that, our uniqueness, to realise our potential. So, yeah, it's a very um, lofty ideal, you know, full of compassion and solidarity. Uh, the main criticisms tend to be that, well, life just isn't like that. Uh, actually, you know, we're really selfish beings, uh, that we're competing with each other based on self-interest. That's our true nature. And so, of course, we need laws. Uh, we, need, we, need, we need the institutions to, to stop us from deteriorating into a chaotic rabble. But as Buddhists, like, we should know that, of course, we can grow beyond self-centred interest. Um, that we can grow into beings who really do care for each other. Who can hold each other genuinely with compassion. Um, yeah, in short, Buddhism suggests that we can become the kind of people who can develop social relationships based on free association to do that means growing into mature interconnected individuals so at the individual level the ideal is this and the the interconnected individual isn't somebody who's losing their individuality they're losing a sense of their uniqueness but they recognise that their personal qualities um, arise out of psychological social and ecological conditions they're not really personal they're something we can actually appropriate to ourselves. So the interconnected individual is connected on these three levels, psychologically, socially and ecologically. Psychologically, an interconnected individual is um, connected to themselves through self-awareness, able to constitute uh, psychological integration, um, have emotional literacy and awareness, that they they know their minds, the depths of the mind, 
and the qualities, the nature of mind. Socially, intimately connected individual is somebody who is able to feel grateful for all that we have received from our past and from the social world around us. That we can feel grateful for what we've received from our ancestors, from our carers, uh, from our teachers. Um, that we know that so much of what we might consider ourself is actually the fruition of the efforts of other people, not ours alone. The uh, interconnected individual recognises, uh, as John Gray says, that human individuals are not natural data, such as pebbles or apples, but are artefacts of social life, cultural and historical achievements. In short, they are exfoliations of the common life itself. <laughs> And they're deeply connected ecologically um, in the sense that spatially speaking they're aware of their connection with the web of life. A dependence, you know, an utter dependence upon the ecological web of life around us. And temporally, in terms of time, they're connected into the whole this sort of the evolutionary process that we uh, are born out of. You know, I have a sense that, in a way, our moment-to-moment experience now is connected seamlessly um, with a, a great distant past. You know, back to sort of 13.7 billion years ago, the flowing forth at the the beginning, the birth of the universe. Four and a half billion years ago, the formation of the Earth. You know, eight to six million years ago, the, the evolution of, of of hominid species. That we have a sense that our present moment experience is the, the crest of a wave which surges out of that great sort of primal past. So ecologically connected into the web of life but also the sense of that evolutionary history. So the interconnected individual. I'll just say a little bit about... So here in terms of free association, obviously freedom is largely understood in terms of non-coercive relationships, but at the level of the interconnected individual, it's also important to kind of notice that, that freedom here um, relates to uh, a quality of responsive awareness, our, our ability to notice our habits, to find the opportunity for more choice within our lives. Um, you know, kind of a, a, a non-grasping quality of awareness that can kind of bring a freedom and openness into our, into into our choices. So there's that that aspect of um, of freedom that's that's so important. It's like the the you know the Yankist ideals, free association. And we'll always fall short if we're only attending to kind of social structures. Now, unless we also attend to a deep transformation of consciousness, then of course this ideal of free association isn't possible. But that. But it's also important to note that the transformation of consciousness is something that we work on as individuals psychologically, but it also requires the social structures to support it. So we've got an idea, right? Free association, interconnected, and in the interconnected individual, something we can become. Before we get too carried away with that, let's have a look at what stops us. So, what are the obstacles? What are the obstacles to moving towards that ideal? 
So again, in terms of the collective dimension, individual dimension, right? So, so in the first, we've got the group. Well, the group actually is a neutral term, right? but I'm using it here in a pejorative sense, in a, with a sort of negative connotation. Um, here I'm using it to to uh, describe a sort of a social a, a group which has the characteristics of um, othering, you know, using a sort of us them. Uh, um, polarity to in, in identity formation uh, that kind of demands conformity of us or pressures us towards conformity that largely arises out of insecurity material and existential and that's uh, primary goal is uh, its own self-perpetuation so I just want to run through those those four briefly so othering and sort of us and them um <coughs> Yeah, I mean, this is something that we can see so clearly, right? Right now, at this point, given the kind of pre- the economic precarities and uncertainties of, the, of this moment, uh, we can see this tendency of othering, of building, you know, strengthening a sense of identity through constructing a reduced um, other uh, in at work in our society very strongly. You know, the rise of of more um, further right wing politics, the kind of xenophobia and intolerance. That we're seeing the, um, you know, Islamophobia that's sort of being built. You know, we can see how, you know, a sense of, of insecurity, even at a, at a material level, causes people to need to sort of strengthen their sense of, of, of separate identity, and that that's that's the dynamic of that involves creating this this view of an other right? that we're not Brexit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> hmm. The kind of material insecurity in this case combines with an existential insecurity, um, so that so that we you know we're, we're you know of course all identity is very provisional, it's all a little bit shaky at the end of the day, right? Um, and so to try to sort of bolster it, to try and strengthen it, you know we kind of create this we create this other that we can help to try to use to strengthen our sense of, of, of self and difference. So the groups do this a lot, you know, the, the group is very much based on this. But, you know, it's easy for us to look at how um, neo-fascism or xenophobia or, you know, the Brexit process uh, is an example of this us and them identity construction. But what about you? How are you doing that? How do you do that? Because you probably do. I don't know you, all of you all that well, but <laughs> something about human nature that suggests that probably you do. So, who, who, you know, how are you doing that? Um, and how do we do it within our groups, even? Right. So fragile identities, and most of us probably have relatively fragile identities. Um, can't tolerate very much diversity or difference. Very often, this othering process goes on within the group itself, sort of scapegoating and things that happen between us. Um, that we we kind of uh, that our groups use fear of exclusion or fear of expulsion as ways to 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 kind of get us to conform to be part of the us, not part of the them. And we create the them in our groups in, in very, as I say, in subtle ways. There's some, some work that I've come across in the last few years 
by an American organization called Training for Change, and they do work that uh, they call anti-oppression work. And uh, some of the vocabulary that they use is um, the idea of mainstreams and margins. And the basic idea is that all groups will have a mainstream. You know, we can think about that in terms of society. We talk mainstream society, right? But all groups have mainstreams, and therefore all groups have margins. And it's really interesting to reflect on how do we create mainstreams and cause marginalisation in our groups. They encourage conformity, or also kind of are still playing out this as-then kind of dynamic and subtle ways within our groups. How are we doing that? Um, To explore that kind of question within our own groups is really important. So we can ask kind of questions like, you know, what what isn't really welcome here? What's not welcome here? What's not welcome in this field, for example? Like here we are, you know, we are kind of creating a certain. There are certain mainstreams in this in this field, right? So what's not so welcome? Um, What what ways of being? um, What styles of being are more? kind of central to the identity of, say, Buddhafield, for example, and which are a bit more marginalised. Who would find it hard to walk into this field field and feel at home? And who walks into this field and feels more at home? What kind of modes of communication are acceptable and which are less acceptable to us? What's not getting said? You know, so so ask who do we other? Who who who's the them to our us? Um, you know, how at ease are we really with diversity um, and divergence of opinion? How well do we cope with dissenting voices and opinions? Um, yeah, how do we marginalise others? So really important and interesting reflections for all of us because this plays out in all of our groups. So. So yeah, interesting. So to the, ex- the to the extent that our our identities are insecure, and we're sort of holding on to them in a way neurotically, you know, we're going to be prone to those kinds of tendencies. Yeah. So the last thing I want to say about the the group here is this is this idea of self perpetuation. Um, that the group tends to view its... It, well, it behaves as though its goal is its own self-perpetuation. So you see this often in political organisations. And I've witnessed this in the history of political organisations who start out with a particular social programme. Um, you know, their, their, their primary goal was to affect social change. And it doesn't take that long before, before actually what seems to become more and more important is the maintenance of the party itself. Yeah, and the maintenance of the organisation, even at the expense of, of being actually effective in, in achieving the kind of change that you want. Um, but we might see this in other kinds of organisations as well. So, so I mean, think about the Triratna community. Um, so the Triratna community has a particular pathway towards deeper commitment within it. You become a friend... You become a mitra, you ask for ordination, you get ordained. So being um, the director of a 
Buddhist center within the Churatna community. Now, I sometimes get surveys um, about what the, the health of the health of our center. The primary questions are: How many people are becoming mitras? How many people are asking for ordination? And how many people are getting ordained? So, what's being used there as a measure for the health and success is is this particular pathway, a particular kind of you know perpetuation growth viewed in a certain kind of way. Right? I find it impossible, we find it really impossible to kind of respond and to answer because that's not really how we work at all. We have a very open source, as it were, approach in our work. You know, we provide people with with tools for reflection, learning, skills, um, create, you know, help people, support people to make relationships. And we very much, it's a bit like, and go and take that and do whatever is most appropriate in your lives in diverse situations with that. And that spreads out and grows in multiple ways. And it's not, not about continuity for what we're doing in terms of the organisation. No one's ever become a member of what we're doing. In fact, it's kind of much more, you know, this sort of open source kind of approach. So, yeah, how do we, you know, how do we, how do we measure success in this sense? You know, is it about the perpetuation, the growth of an organisation? Or is it about impact? And how do we look at that? So just, you know, something to sort of, you know, I find it an interesting reflection. Or also, it's just the, earlier this summer, I was at the European Chairs Assembly uh, in Adistana. And in one of the sessions, we, um, we were asked to stand on a line in the room um, according to uh, whether we thought Triratna would still be around in 200 years. You know, would, it, would, it, would Triratna be surviving in 200 years? One end of the room you know, was like, absolutely, definitely it was going to be there, right? Because, you know, these are big issues, right? You know, Sangrach, the founder, is going to die soon. So people were very concerned about what's the legacy? How is this going to go on, right? So one end of the room was like, absolutely, definitely, no doubt about it. And the other end of the room was definitely not total dissolution, right? I found myself kind of very much down the sort of dissolution end of the room. And um, I was asked why I was there. And I said, well, because... The history of religion, as far as I've studied it, uh, shows schism, division, <laughs> you know, diversification, and actually as a very creative process. That many organisations that are still around are 200 years, amidst so many changing circumstances, are very likely to be quite stagnated. So, you know, the group, you know, how do we, how do we view, you know, our aims. So in the group, often we're sort of very concerned to, to maintain. Okay, so moving on to the obstacle at the individual level, atomized, the atomized individualist. Um, so a group of one, in the sense that the atomized individualist exhibits all of, all of the characteristics of the group at the level of, as an individual right? so still construct identity through othering so self-other is very strong very important conformity well here what I mean is uh, the sense that when we construct a limited sense of ourselves there are parts of ourselves that we can't include you know it's like we have to straitjacket ourselves in many ways or sort of suppress and repress aspects of ourselves so there's a psychologically a sort of a, a, a demand within the within the ego for psychological conformity um there's insecurity, the same existential insecurity kind of is, is at play here, and self-perpetuation, well, sure. Um, competitive, um, 
So yeah, the individualist is always in competition with others. I mean, the individualist will will cooperate as long as it's in their own self-interest, uh, to their own advantage. So this has really become such a dominant view of human nature. Um, perhaps it's become a dominant view of nature, not just human nature. You know, this idea that, that, that evolution is a struggle for survival, which of course it isn't just that. Um, but it's really, you know, this is the view at the, at the heart of capitalist organising, uh, especially sort of neoliberalism. Uh, the idea that we're fundamentally driven by self-interest. Uh, and neoliberalism goes so far as to then model the entire global economy on this, on this view. But, you know, of course it doesn't really work. There's a, I'm going to share a little, a little, uh, little antidote, uh, anecdote with you. So, so, you know, if there's anything that, that helps us to see how modelling society on, on the, the view of self-interest as being the kind of the fundamental kind of nature of ourselves, um, it was probably the, uh, the financial crash of 2008 was a very good indicator of the limitations of that. Uh, you know, it, it, it shocked even the sort of die-hard ideologists of, of, of neoliberalism. So, so at the uh, House Committee session in Washington, 23rd of October 2008, um, exploring that crash, uh, the chairman of the House Committee asked Alan Greenspan, who was the former chair of the Federal Reserve, um, who, who was a real champion of neoliberal deregulation, he asked him, he said to him, uh, you found that your world view, your ideology, was not right. Uh, it was not. It was not working. He asks, and Alan Greenspan replies, um, "Absolutely, precisely. You know, that's precisely the reason I was shocked because I've been going on for forty years or more with a very considerable evidence that it was working really well." But, but Alan Greenspan says, "But a flaw. I, I'd found a flaw in the model." Um, that I perceived as the critical functioning structure of how the world worked. Those of us who have looked at the self-interest of lending institutions to protect our shareholders' equity, myself especially, are in a state of shocked disbelief. I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of banks and others were such that they were best capable of protecting their own shareholders. So it's kind of interesting, isn't it? I mean, what a, a great example of the dysfunctionality of our system. That this man, right, with this view, is, you know, he's the chair of the Federal Reserve, has such a powerful influence, and yet he's shocked to find something that you could have told him that, right? <laughs> right? But, you know, we're, we're, we're this, this, this idea of the atomized individualist, it's like we're at a point where... Um, in fact, the, 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 this is really hypercharged. You know, the particular forms of, of, of society con- conditioned, affected by neoliberal policy, really hypercharged this so that we have this sense of a, a sort of late capitalist narcissism, right? um, a, a really heightened sense of sort of self preoccupation in so many different ways, a heightened sense of people telling our stories, you know, in social media and constituting identities, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, of course, the, the atomized individualist, it, um, those tendencies <coughs> often um, 
preference, short-term, more hedonistic kind of gains in terms of you know making choices in life. Uh, very often play that play itself out in social relationships, more of a kind of command and control type of relationships. But I'm, I won't unpack that very much because I'm you know I imagine most of you got a, a, a pretty good sense of, of of some of those things. But what I do want to say though is that um, these aren't uh, these aren't bad. Right? They're obstacles, but they're not bad. This isn't like this isn't the enemy formation or something, right? Um, there's a really great book by uh, writer, uh, an economist called Ch- Tim Jackson, and it's called uh, Prosperity Without Growth. And in that book, he, he, he presents a diagram, and one of the axes on that diagram has, at one end of the axis is individual survival and competition, and the other end of the axis is collective survival and cooperation. So, reflected here, right? And he points out that both of these tendencies are necessary in the evolution of humanity. They're both necessary. You know, at different times, you know, they, they both are necessary. Um, without, you know, a sort of a, a, a more individualistic sort of drive towards self-interested survival, we wouldn't have evolved, right? Similarly, without um, the capacity to cooperate, to... to um, gain uh, so many of the kind of more complex attributes of human consciousness you know emotional emotional you know complex emotionality cognitive linguistic kind of capacity without that kind of cooperation again we wouldn't have survived we wouldn't have become who we are so individual survival competition that, that self-interest and cooperation they're both necessary parts and um, necessary elements of the evolutionary history and so there's something of a tension in the human heart between these um, a necessary tension uh, and it's also you know that, that tension exists in all human institutions as well uh, in, orga- in, in organisations and groups you know that tension between individualism and collectivism you know we see that playing out in so many ways that the group you know demanding conformity Individuals benefiting from being members of those groups, you know, we need each other and yet feeling stifled and trying to pull away from that, trying to sort of fight out of that, or maybe trying to dominate the group to sort of bring it, to, you know, use it for one's own self interest. These kind of tensions, you know. Um, Jackson, I'm going to read a little bit of a uh, little quote from Tim Jackson. He says, um, Each society strikes the balance between altruism and selfishness uh, in different places. And where this balance is struck depends crucially on social structures. When technologies, infrastructures, institutions and social norms reward self-enhancement and novelty, then selfish, sensation-seeking behaviours prevail over more considered altruistic ones. Where social structures favour altruism and tradition, uh, self-transcending behaviours are rewarded and selfish behaviour may even be penalised. So... you know, he's pointing out that this, the capacity to cooperate and you know, the sort of differentiation, the individuation uh, are, are, both, uh, are, are both parts of us. That, you know, the, uh, under certain social situations, the tendency towards self-interest will become stronger. Under others, the capacity to cooperate will become stronger. 
something that, that is worth, um, I think, important in relationship to this is so, so the value here, the, um, the, the, the core value of, the, of these, what I'm calling the obstacles, um, is self-interest, whether it's self-interest at the individual level or the self-interest constituted at the group level. And the ideal, the value, is this value of going for the good of the whole. So one thing that's really important here is to to have a sense that the tension between individual and collective isn't resolved in this ideal in the direction of the collective. Right? It's not resolved in the direction of the collective. Going for the good of the whole doesn't involve the sacrificing of individuality to a collective. Right? It takes us to a different into a different kind of configuration. So that this tension between individual in self-interested individual and our capacity to cooperate um, is, um, is 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 moved from is transformed from a kind of a, an unproductive kind of conflictual relationship into a much more creative tension with this shift to the value of going for the good of the whole because the value of going for the good of the whole includes the integrity of the parts. So just before moving on to the transition, right? How do we move from obstacles to to the ideals, which is you know this idea of the transformative group? I just want to say one more thing about um, uh, identity, you know, group identity especially. So I often come across uh, criticisms or discomfort um, around um, what's sometimes called identity politics. Um, or the ways that people uh, politically form collective identities. And um, so gender, race, ethnicity, class. And especially with Buddhists, you have this sort of people complaining, oh, you know, there's people are kind of like, you know, shouldn't we be loosening our sense of identity? You know, shouldn't we be sort of letting go? Shouldn't we be kind of like, you know, recognise our identity as kind of relative and provisional and all this kind of stuff, right? And like, here are these people kind of, you're talking about race or gender in ways that seem to to be actually, you know, consolidating a sense of identity. I think it's really important to bear in mind that very often those criticisms come from people whose sense of identity... Um, uh, they're fortunate enough to have grown in a context where their sense of identity is affirmed in some ways and which often gives them access to certain privileges within society. When we um, grow and we develop where our identity is marginalised or we're receiving a negative reflection back about who we are, in terms of our identity, it becomes really important to reclaim and reconstitute a positive sense of identity to empower ourselves. So it's really useful, I think, to be able to distinguish between identity in terms of identities that are imprisoning, identities that are empowering, and identities that are liberating. Um, I think, at its worst, the the group, the atomized individual, we're talking about imprisoning identity the ideal really sort of liberating identity but in the transition we need to form empowering identities it's very important 
So let's look at that space, you know, the transition, the, the space, how we, how might we get from the obstacles towards the ideals. So this is what um, we talk at Ecodharma and, and a lot of the trainings we do about uh, the transformative group. So what is the transformative group? Well, the first thing is the transformative group is not the ideal. The transformative group is a context uh, for the emergence of the ideal. It's a context. Um, it's the soil out of which free association and the mature, integrated, in, uh, interconnected individual can grow out of. Um, but it will tend to fall short of that ideal because we come into this so conditioned by the obstacles, so conditioned by you know the, the, the nature of the group and by individualistic tendencies, by the value of, of self-interest. So it will, it will often fall short. The transformative group, the life of the transformative group will often be quite messy. Um, and it's important to bear in mind because you know when we're trying to realise ideals, it can be so disappointing, so disheartening, so undermining when we fail to do that. But that's how it's going to be. Right? That's how it's going to be. So it also involves and requires ongoing learning. One of the ways. Um, that explore the, the conditions that can support the health of a transformative group is to think in terms of uh, balances and, and tensions. Um, the obvious ones to me are the balance of tension between autonomy and cooperation, between innovation and conservation, between diversity and commonality, and between inclusivity and exclusivity. Thinking about these in in terms of tensions and, and balances, um, it can be very useful to notice tendencies in ourselves to want to maximise values that we think are good. So this is a bit of, another bit of systems thinking. You know, the idea that if we're going to think more in systems, we need to shift from uh, maximising to optimising. When we maximise. We, we tend to think something's good, more of it must be even better. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, if you, you know, look at sort of nu- nutritional plants, you know, a particular nutrient might be really great for the plants, your nitrogen. That doesn't mean that more and more and more nitrogen is actually going to be good, right? Too much of a certain nutrient, too much of a certain medicine becomes a toxin or poison. So when we think in t- when we're, when we're maximising, we'll, we'll think in that way. Optimising is about recognising we need the right dose, the right amount, in the right balance. But it's also worth bearing in mind that um, how much we need, the dose, the, the balance, will probably be continually changing. Uh, this is uh, going back to Kropotkin, who I mentioned earlier. He has a, a lovely phrase when he's talking about balances within society. He talks about the fugitive equilibrium. The fugitive equilibrium. Um, the idea that the, sort of the perfect balance is always going to elude us. Um, that we need to be continually adjusting and adapting. Uh, one moment of this and then we'll find actually oh we've gone too far this way and then we have to pull back the other way right? continually adjusting and adapting 
I mean, those of you who who, who do quite a bit of meditation, we're familiar with that experience in terms of like balanced effort. You know, it's like a constant kind of aliveness to kind of what's needed, right? adjusting and, and adapting. So, in terms of the fugitive equilibrium, we could say that the balance and attentions between these autonomy, cooperation, innovation, conservation, diversity, commonality, inclusivity, and exclusivity are never going to be settled. Um, they're always going to be evolving, and there's a need for a continuous responsiveness in, in, in attending to them. So look at each of them a little bit, um, briefly. So autonomy and cooperation. Um, as I said, the value of going for the good of the whole helps to keep this tension healthy. Right? Because we know that we can't resolve the tension in one direction or the other. We're not seeking to resolve it in one direction or the other. Um, perhaps one of the key ways that we need to attend to this in our group, specifically in organising working together, is looking at the distribution of power within our groups, and specifically how we make decisions. We find that it's very common um, in sort of more horizontal ways of organising to really preference consensus decision making, including everyone. In more hierarchical forms of organising, it's sort of common to, to concentrate uh, decision making uh, with a few people. Each of those have certain benefits. Yeah? Um, if we get hung up on having to do it one way or the other way, we lose an enormous versatility in being able to effectively distribute power throughout our group and our organisation which is really important because there are times, aren't there, where you know, certain principal issues, we want to bring everyone together. It's like, you know, we've got to get everyone sort of on board. We've got to really be able to sort of talk through what matters to people. But there are other moments where we just need to be able to take initiative. We need to free people up to sort of, you know, to be creative, to get on with stuff. We have to have the capacity to delegate, to you know, delegate authority to one another and responsibility. So, really, sort of looking at how we make decisions is really crucial in supporting the balance of autonomy and uh, cooperation. In terms of innovation and uh, conservation, this is worth exploring because our society there's a very strong at this point uh, tendency towards uh, to prioritise innovation. Yeah. Um, which is really important, but of course it's also very important to preserve wisdom, right? to preserve learning, to have a sense of continuity. Um, so, you know, in organisations it's very, very important to establish really clear, um, mm, shared, understood protocols and processes around decision making, for example, about how we share information, that kind of stuff. Right? And, um, and over the years we learn you know, ways that it works really well. But we also need to be able to adapt and adjust them. We do need to be able to kind of, you know, change as circumstances change. And getting that balance isn't always very easy. Something I think worth bearing in mind is when we enter groups, um, it's important that we take our time before we seek to intervene, interject, kind of like make suggestions. It's like most groups have a certain wisdom. Right? They have a history. And they, have a, they do things for reasons. It's not because they're stupid, it's because they actually, are, uh, you know, they've learned from experience that this seems to work. So before one starts sort of saying, hey, actually, maybe we should, or no, I noticed this problem, that problem, it's better to kind of just take time and sort of try and learn, why, why is it like this? Why does that happen? What is there that's going on here? Yeah. It's very important and interesting.
Very often we find there's a real tension in organisations between innovators and conservatives. Um, which is really sad that there's a, there's a, I mean, often it's, it's there's actually a, a sense of um, resentment or fear in a way. Yeah? I mean, it's, it, as individuals, we may be predisposed more towards one way of being or another. Right? But in terms of the health of a group or an organisation, it's so important to recognise the diverse contributions people are making, and we need both of those things. You know, if you're more of an innovator, then actually. You're really grateful that someone's doing the work that you really wouldn't want, you know, it would kill you, right, to be doing that stuff, you know, like the kind of more conservative hanging on, like, you know, definitions and so on, right? And if you're more of that predisposition, it's like, you know, feeling really grateful that there are people kind of exploring the edges, you know, keeping it alive, stopping the stagnation. So, you know, can we come into a sense of the appreciation of the diversity of that e- organisational ecosystem that helps us get out of the polarisation? that actually supports us to be doing the thing we want to do, you know, to do what they're doing. Right? Um, diversity and commonality, I don't say much about it. I mean, you know, healthy, resilient systems, they do require diversity. You know, they seem to require diversity. Um, so it's, you know, very, very important to value value this and try to try to bear diversity sometimes as well as celebrate it. But also very important to keep looking for commonality, especially in terms of like key uh, uh, sort of core purposes um, and a shared and a shared needs as well. Inclusivity and exclusion, I think, is is a really interesting one, right? Um, so, you know, a group needs to have boundaries; otherwise, it's not a group. It's just a sort of a you know transformative group needs boundaries. Otherwise, it's just a, a amalgamation, random amalgamation of stuff. Right? Um, it needs to have boundaries it's like you think of a cell a biological cell has a a membrane around it Um, and that membrane is necessary to to hold the sort of metabolising space the the self-organising system of the cell itself but that membrane um, will tend to have uh, a degree of permeability if it's too permeable then it will be flooded by toxins and it will die uh, but if it's not permeable enough, it won't receive nutrients and it will die. And our groups and organisations are like that. It's like, what's, think about, you know, there is going to be a boundary, there needs to be a boundary. How permeable or impermeable does that boundary need to be in different ways? In different ways. I think this is a difficult one for people working in progressive social circles sometimes because inclusivity is such an important value. You know, the incredibly important uh, political um, battles fought for greater inclusivity. And they're very, very important. But when we maximise inclusivity, we get very, very dysfunctional organisations. You know, I've seen so many groups, alternative groups, just collapse because they've tried to maximise inclusivity. And it's a really tough one because... You know, we live in a society where certain certain kinds of safety nets and right, certain kinds of support are just not there for lots of people. You know, and, and you know, pro- socially progressive groups often want to kind of provide support for that, completely understandably, right, as a value. But they're really difficult decisions to make because what resources do we have sometimes, right? 
You know, what resources do we have? What, what, what? How, how can we bear that? Can we, you know, how many people can we bring into things? Just you know, despite who who they are, but just numbers of people. If we're continually sort of changing the turnover or the constitution of our group, losing continuity, then that's a very a very unhealthy kind of condition as well. You know, the continuity is important. You know, the sort of the conservation. It also depends on continuity of people in a group. Right? So, like, how many people can we bring in? How it's so easy to become overstretched. We have few resources. It's already very, very hard. Many of the things we're trying to do. So sometimes we have to be really choosy about who we do it with. Really choosy. Right? Make it easier for yourself. <laughs> and that's quite hard because that involves excluding some people. But if we're, yeah, exactly. So if we, but maybe that's necessary because we're prioritising the sort of the, the ongoing kind of work of, of building a society that can be more inclusive in many ways. Right? So those are really hard hard decisions to make. So, okay, I'm going to finish very briefly by rattling off a little bit of a list. Right? Um, if this is if there's a fugitive equilibrium right, amongst these in, in, in you know in the tension between the, these these elements, what do we need in our groups to stay alive to that? To be responsive, right? To keep adjusting, Because right? health doesn't mean being a particular way; it means being alive to the balance and the tensions between these and being appropriately responsive. Right? So, firstly, um, one of the conditions that will support that is really keeping clear that the purpose of your group is bigger than the group itself that's so important right? really really important secondly um, there needs to be a shared commitment uh, to transform ourselves and to honour and support the transformation of others because we're going to embody these ideals that I mentioned about that's we're not there yet right so it requires that commitment and that commitment to support others. Um, that we really do value the well-being of individuals as well as the whole of the group. All too often, you know, groups involved in social justice and ecological work, um, they have enormous drop-off because of burnout, because we push each other, we expect certain kinds of sacrifices from each other. Um, and that sort of is very unproductive because then we end up with people being stressed, people being in conflict, people letting us down. Right? So really kind of really, really being uh, attending to the importance of the well-being of the individuals, like the well-being of the individuals or the, uh, are integral to the well-being of the whole. And fourthly, a condition that helps is that we're really clear that collaboration really is a necessary developmental context because we're going to want to get out of it sometimes when it's not easy right? we don't want to get out of it um, but you know so really valuing both the challenge and the support that comes from that uh, fifthly I'd say you know that we really do have shared um, or at least mutually respected practices for self-transformation especially self-awareness we don't have to do the same practices you know, maybe many of us are meditators. That's fantastic. You know, I think they're really great tools. But there are other tools as well. You know, people use more 
therapeutic process, for example, to, to towards self awareness. Other people use like co counselling type processes as well, right? In a way, what's important is is that we we can respect the effectiveness of the practices that others around us are using. So we need those tools for self awareness so that we increase our capacity. Um, we need to, you know, be able to transform. But also it reassures us that other people are working on themselves because we are going to let each other down. And we are going to have to forgive each other. Um, but there's no point in forgiving someone if they're just going to do it again and again and again. But you really can forgive someone if you know that they're working on and they have methods to transform themselves and overcome those limitations that we're witnessing at this point. Right? So really important, these, these shared or at least mutually respected practices for self-awareness. So this practice of self-awareness can support a kind of more responsive mind, a responsive awareness you know, in terms of working with, you know, being responsive to the, the, the looking for this fugitive equilibrium. But we need the same responsiveness in the organisation. So we also need tools for group reflection. How do we reflect on what's going on in the group? How do we reflect on our effectiveness, the dynamics, etc., etc.? So we need tools for that specifically. So there's a kind of there's a there's a parallel, you know, responsive mind and responsive organisation. So you know these are these are methods of like reviewing and, and analysing, reflecting right, collectively. To support that, the seventh condition I had on this list I'm rattling through what is and balancing action and reflection. We come together on the basis of something bigger than the group. There's often a lot to do. But if we want to do it well, we need to stop regularly. We need to stop doing it in order to reflect on what we've learnt from doing it. And unless we regularly pause in that way, we will just keep on repeating unhelpful tendencies. So we really need to clear time to stop and reflect. How's it going? What have we learned? Re-analyse and re-plan. But the balance of action reflection is important because just reflecting, you don't learn anything. All you find is something you think might be right. Then you just go and try it. So then the action, so that you can test it out and learn something else. And again, so the cycle of action and reflection, getting the balance right, really important. What else? Clearly articulated ethical principles hmm? and practices. So we can own, so we can look at, you know, what's happening in, uh, at the ethical level. So we can own our failures. So that again, we can forgive each other in that. That we're working on these things. That we share the aspiration, especially around communication. Yeah. So in, in Sri Ratna, we tend to use the five precepts as the general form, right? That gets used across the movement. At Eco Dharma, we always use the ten precepts. It's a bit naughty, I know. Um, because they're supposed to be the the, dharma, the, the, the precepts for dharmacharis and dharmacharinis. But we live really intensively together. So unless we make clear, right, explicitly, that we're working on the four pre- speech precepts, right, the one speech precept of the five, it just isn't enough for that kind of intensive practice together. We need to really attend to all four of those speech precepts. Right? So, you know, really having a clear ethical framework. Very important. One that I think is really difficult is the idea of long-term association. And it's really difficult because we live at a time where there's so much mobility. People move around, we change, you know, we change jobs, we change cities and so on and so forth, right? But actually deeper trust, deeper connection that supports 
truly transformative working together, I don't think there are shortcuts in terms of time. I think we need to know each other for longer periods of time, and that requires us exploring how can we commit to longer periods of engagement with each other in different ways. Having external supports and perspectives in our groups, we need people outside of our group to be able to shine light on what's going on uh, and to support us in times of difficulty because, you know, although we're going to be great, kind of responsive, emotionally open, ethical people, we'll still get into trouble. (laughs) Having people outside, good friends outside, really important mentors outside our groups. And the last one I'm going to mention is... um, being open to dissolution and renewal. There really are times where, you know, I've seen groups of people try to keep making it work, you know, and uh, just be bogged down in it, like so much kind of creativity lost in something that isn't at that point going to be salvageable, but they can't let it go. Sometimes we do. I mean, it's really important to try and make it work, but sometimes let it go, because the learning, it will go somewhere else. Take it somewhere else and start again with all the stuff that you discovered last time you tried, and it will be different. <laughs> so, okay, so like I said, none of this is prescriptive. Like these are kind of like the 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 ways of exploring, um, you know, offering a kind of bit of a framework for analysing how we can work more effectively together. Some of the conditions that will support this as to realize to, to constitute really transformative groups that are transforming the world around us, embodying our values, and supporting us to realize our own potential. And um, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot at, at stake in a way. This is really important stuff for us to be exploring together, you know, to be learning together, because you know it will be by us coming together effectively that we will make the kind of differences we want to make. And even though we can't guarantee the outcome of those efforts, at least in our coming together in an attempt to do that, we ourselves will find opportunities to really flourish, which in itself is so valuable. So I hope some of that's helpful to you. Uh, Stop.